Alright, welcome into the Clay Edwards Show. We're live here in the Generator Power Solutions studio. I'm sorry about that. My headphones are not plugged in. I'm like, why aren't my headphones working? Meanwhile, he's turning up the, the volume blasting my ears out. Yep. Alright, there we go. There we might have their own volume knob. There you um, go. <clears throat> All right, well, look, you've tuned in to the Free Range Human Show of Choice, your daily dose of reality radio. It starts now. This is the Clay Edwards Show. I am, of course, Clay Edwards. And we've got a full complement of hosts in the studio with us this morning. Of course, Therese Apel, back from assignment. That's right, I'm back. DarkHorsePressNow.com. All right, we have another .com or .org in the studio with us. We have Douglas Carswell, CEO of the Mississippi Policy Center. Or, I'm really sure I said that right. It's Center for Mississippi Public Policy, right? right? Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Mississippi Center for Public Policy. And you can find them <laughs> online at mspolicy.org. And, uh, so we're going to talk about Jackson crime this morning, and a bunch of it. If you guys want to call in the Mac Hike of Flowood phone line, if you got any questions for Douglas or Therese or myself, 601-879-0002. The Guns and Gear text line, 769 241-1944. Guys, let's just jump in. Douglas, you came out with a plan, kind of a five-point plan for Jackson. I'll tell you what, we'll, let's rewind a little bit. Um, tell people about the center, Mississippi Center for Public Policy and about yourself a little bit. Well, you can probably tell from my accent. I'm not from around here. I'm a, I'm a new um, immigrant to America. I'm from England. Um, I've newly arrived in Jackson. And um, I, I love it here. I think it's um, I think it's the greatest state in the greatest republic on earth. But one thing, and I don't mean any disrespect to anyone in Jackson by this, one thing that shocks me about Jackson is the homicide rate. I was shocked to discover when I moved here that Jackson has the highest murder rate of any city in America. And what shocks me is not so much that, it's the attitude of officials who should be doing something about it to that. They treat it as though it's just a fact of life, like a passing thunderstorm or the sun rising every morning. And they don't seem to recognize that it's the catastrophic failure of civic leadership and the criminal justice system in Jackson that has allowed this to spiral out of control. Let's just stop and be a little bit outraged for a moment. Within the past three days, three African-American women have been murdered, sometimes in broad daylight, in Jackson. One of them was a five-year-old girl. And it seems to me quite outrageous that there is this shrug of indifference. And so I thought, hang on. We are Mississippi's free market think tank. We're supposed to come up with ideas to cut taxes and to deregulate and to do all these things. But we also, I think, have to address the central fact, which is that our capital city is not a safe place. And so we came up with a five-point plan. It's, it's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. Plan number one is more police. It's proven time and time again that if you have more police, you cut crime. If um, you uh, don't have enough police, the bad guys think they can do what they want. So well, step number one. Let me, chime in. let me chime in right there. That's something I've that's a drum I've been beating for a long time. They're like, well, police can't predict crime. Well, yeah, but if you're a criminal, and I used to be one. I grew up a criminal out there get, uh, white gang banging in South Jackson. We were called the South Side Posse. We were up to no good all the time. We were part of the problem. If we saw blue lights or we saw police, guess what we didn't do? Right. Cause problems. Well, a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, you're, you're right. But you said, um, some people say you can't predict crime. Now, actually, that's not true. Some of the most effective policing in American cities was, I think it was Bill Bratton, who discovered that actually, if you create a crime map, you can predict with Absolutely. quite a lot of accuracy. I can't help noticing, and I've not looked at the data, but I can't help noticing that a lot of these murders 
happen in gas stations. Now, I don't think that it's entirely um, impossible to speculate as to where crime is likely to occur. And if you have enough police, you can then start to do what you call targeted policing. Now, targeted policing means you don't just send the extra police you've got where they're needed, when they're needed. You also start to say, hang on, not everyone who lives in the Greater Jackson metropolitan area is as likely to commit a homicide as everyone else. So you start to target certain groups of people. And I think it's pretty clear to me that there is a gang problem. A lot of this homicide and a lot of this murder is being committed by a small number of gang members. So where are you likely to find those gang members? Are they likely to be in Kroger on a Saturday morning? Probably not. Are they likely to be maybe hanging around a certain gas station at a certain time of the evening? Perhaps so. Once you accept that you need more police, you then begin to intelligently target the way you deploy those police. And if you do that, all the evidence from New York in the 80s, from South Central Los Angeles in the 1990s, all the evidence suggests that you can dramatically cut crime. Well, and there's evidence from that here. Um, several years back, you know, under a, a different police administration, different mayor, that kind of thing, um, they had a couple of different things in place that were working. One of them was adapted from the Baton Rouge Area Violence Eradication Program, they called BRAVE. We called it MACE, Metro Area Crime Eradication. Um, it didn't get to, to be in place very long because people were getting voted out of office and that kind of thing. But the thing was, they put it in, in Ward 3, which was it is still a, a place that's high crime. They partnered with churches and even gang leaders, you know, some of these people, and said, we need to cut this down. I can't remember the statistic now because it was maybe 2015, but crime dropped, I mean, exponentially in that area where they were doing this. And it was a collaboration of the neighborhoods and the police and the, you know, even the gang members, they would bring the leaders in and say, you know, you don't, it, it, we're, we're going to ignore this set of warrants over here if you guys stop dropping bodies. Mm -hmm. The minute we see that, then boom, and that, that's what they did in Baton Rouge, and it, it was working here. Mm -hmm. It's just that, and I can speak to it, I've covered crime in, in Jackson since 2010, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it is absolutely a failure on the part of administration, mm -hmm. top to bottom. And if, if you... Imagine a Jackson in which you've got enough police, you have intelligent targeting, police targeting. It's not enough then to just chase the criminals through the streets. Sure. A, a number of law enforcement officers I've spoken to say it's actually incredibly frustrating. Um, you, you heard of the recent shooting at the Mud, Mudbug Festival. Well, I discovered yesterday that one of those involved in that was uh, apparently um, arrested for armed robbery a few weeks before. So it's not just chasing criminals through the streets. We need to chase them through the courts. So step number two, we need aggressive prosecution. Now, I think the most famous crime fighter in urban America in the past 30 years is Rudy Giuliani. Um, before he became famous for other things, he became famous for being a no-nonsense DA in, in New York. And he would prosecute people really aggressively. And guess what? The, 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 the people he prosecuted for the small offenses also turned out to be responsible for some of the big offenses. So if you had a really aggressive prosecution program and you went after people, um, and you went after a small number of people responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime. You certainly don't let people go back onto the streets when you suspect they've committed armed robbery. If you had that aggressive public prosecution, you would give the police the assurance that when they bring in the bad guy, the bad guy kept, is, is taken out of circulation. So we need really, really, um, you know, this is as much a prosecution problem. On a similarly related note, we sometimes hear that the police had to let people go because there's not enough detention capacity. 
Well, you know, guess who's responsible for that? Not yeah, enough detention to keep capacity. Them out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Build more detention capacity. It's not as if downtown Jackson's short of spare <laughs> land where you might so build true. a facility. Right. Um, you know, somehow Madison and many other cities in um, Mississippi and indeed the United States manage to have enough detention capacity. Um, it's a bit like complaining there's no water in uh, drinkable water because because the pipes burst. I mean, build better pipes. If there's not enough detention capacity to lock away the bad guys, build more detention capacity. Um, so that that needs to happen. Um, that is happening, but it's not happening fast enough. And I think that, that the fourth thing we really need is to clear the courts. Um, now, I know that COVID gave a lot of people an excuse for not doing their jobs, and it gave a lot of people an excuse for um, mediocrity and failure. But you can't have a thriving city where you have a court system that has got the kind of backlog that Hines County, Hines Courts have. So we need to clear the backlog so that when a bad person is brought in and prosecuted, they face justice quickly. It's really important that that happens because then the community has confidence that people who do wrong will be dealt with. So clear the backlog in the courts. And if people say, because they're still wearing masks and don't want to actually do any work, that, hey, you know, we, we, we've got this terrible backlog in our courts, bring in some administrators who can actually do the job. They managed to do it in most cities in Mississippi. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, to, to your point on targeted, targeted crime fighting, it, we have a problem here in Jackson with the, the wokest mayor in America and they won't do that because they always find a way for it to be about racism. I'm like, it can't be about racism when every thing in the city is black-centric. This It's a 85% black city, ran by black folks, black police, black everything. But it's also, I mean, the, the elephant in the room is it's black people committing the crimes. It is what it is when you have the population like that. It, it well, just it, is. If you go to city you've way, got to, you've got to yeah. fight the crime and, and, and worry, it can't worry about, well, they're black, you know. If we target this, it can't, this can't be about racism. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's not about racism. But this is the group of people in this town creating this problem. We have to target them. One of the things I found since I've moved to Mississippi is that sometimes some people see everything through the prism of the distant past. Look, the average age of a person in Mississippi is 37. Right. Can we have a conversation about some of the po policy failures we face based on what's happening now, Amen. not what might have happened a, a, a long, long time ago? Um, I, I think that if you've got a city like Jackson where you've got sky-high crime, it does a disservice to everyone in the city if, if we see everything through the prism of race. I, I think that crime is one of those things where it doesn't, it doesn't frankly matter what your background is, what your heritage is, right. everyone wants to live in a safe neighborhood. And I, I defy anyone to find anyone of any heritage or any ethnic group who doesn't want that. So I think it's one of those things where we should all be able to agree on the basis. Everyone in Jackson has a right to good, effective policing and good, effective public prosecution. I, I'm not sure it's sensible to see this as all about identity. Well, and as you guys research this stuff, um, you know, having started my own business and doing all the things, I don't have time to do the public records stuff that I used to. But right now we're in a situation where we've seen several good police officers that have been involved in you know, critical incidents on the job, whether it be a line of duty shooting or, um, you know, a suspect dies in custody or out of custody, as, as one case may be. Um, things that in the past would absolutely, when the FBI cleared it, when internal affairs cleared it, that took care of it. Um, but we're seeing this, this administration kind of push to prosecute those officers. 
in the meantime, you know, as they're doing that, there are people out there committing, you know, crimes that are not necessarily I, justifiable. I have huge respect for the police because I think they do an incredibly difficult job. On the one hand, of course, every every officer is um, accountable under the law, and that's right. Um, if uh, an officer of the law breaks the law, they they're liable. Absolutely. But but look at it from that point of view. You are confronted with a situation where the people, some of the people you're dealing with, could be unarmed. They could, on the other hand, be armed. And so often, if you're a police officer, you're in a situation where you're confronting people who are, who are not afraid. Maybe they they they're young, reckless. Um, um, the teenagers, um, they're not afraid to use um, firepower. So you, you run that risk. And on the other hand, you look behind you and you think, am I going to get the backup, the moral and the legal and the political backup from the establishment, the civic establishment behind me, or are they going to use this to, 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 to you know, um, pin it on me? Yeah. And, and I think if you are an officer of the law upholding the rule of law in Jackson, and you're having to make split-second decisions, it doesn't do you any favors to know that you don't have, someone doesn't have your back. Well, and I've had Jackson police tell me that that's exactly the situation. You, you see something happening, and you think, but am I going to go to jail for the rest of my life if I have to act on this? And they will back off right now, because it's if it's going home to your kids, not just tonight, but every night for the rest of your life, versus, I didn't see that. You know. Well, I mean, look what happened with uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. What happened with Derek Chauvin and the George Floyd thing? You know, I mean, I, I don't believe that guy left his house that day. I'm not saying what he did was right or wrong or whatever, but he didn't leave his house that day thinking, I'm going to go kill me a guy. He got caught up in a situation. One bad situation led to another. And now George Floyd is dead. Police spend the rest of his life in prison. I, 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 think, I don't think anybody wants yeah. to be that guy. If, well, if, if you're a police officer, you have to be accountable under the law. But yeah. I, I look at the difficulty that. Jackson police are in, and I, I think it, it's, we haven't, let's face it, we haven't made their job any easier, and then we complain about rising crime. Maybe maybe we should think, what is it that we can do to give assurance to those police officers? I, I, I also think it's really important that the civic leadership in Jackson makes it absolutely unequivocally clear that they are 100% behind the police. And yet, yes, of course, if a police officer, an individual police officer does something wrong, that, that needs to be addressed. But the fundamental thing is, if you don't allow the gang that we call the police to dominate the public space, it will be dominated by gangs who are a lot less pleasant than the police. Yes, and have no structure. Because yes. even though in the past, the large national gangs, you know, they, they had a hierarchy, they had a structure. They still do, ideally. But you get into a place like Jackson, I mean, it's known on several levels that that a lot of the Jackson gangs are, are um, cliques or, you know, they're neighborhood groups or they're loosely affiliated or whatever, and they're not, in, in more cases than not, actually following what used to be the, the rules of the streets when it came to gang members, you know. Um, and so that's another reason it's so dangerous is you've got these 14-year-olds out here trying to prove themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've got these these gangs that are, you know, built in a, in a neighborhood, you know, the one that um, Chief Lee Vance used to use all the time was the Wood Street Boys. He would say that, you know, you got this wannabe gang. Mm -hmm. Well, the wannabe gangs are as dangerous as anything mm -hmm. else, probably more so, actually, because of that lack of structure. One of the things as an outsider I found really revealing about coming to America and coming to Jackson, before I came here, I got my news about America from organizations like CNN. And so I tended to think that the reason why America had a high murder rate was because of high gun ownership. I now realize that's completely wrong. Yeah. 
that these murders and the overwhelming bulk of homicides in Jackson are not being committed by people with legally held firearms. Right. The people with legally held firearms are completely responsible and, and are by and large not responsible for the crime. It is the illegally held, and you talked about 14-year-olds, it's, it's kids as young as, as that. Um, it's young teenagers, young males. Fortunately, people tend to, it seems, grow out of crime. But from the age of about 14, 15 to the mid 20s, um, you know, illegally held firearms in the hands of people like that is a problem. Right, hold that thought. We're going to take a break real quick. You're listening to The Clay Eagle Show. We're joined by Douglas Cardwell, Mississippi Center for Public Policy, and Therese April with darkhorsepressnow.com. We'll be right back on 103.9 WYAB. All right, we're joined here in the studio this morning by Douglas Cardwell. He is the CEO with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. And of course, we have Ms. Therese Abel with darkhorsepressnow.com. That's right. We're discussing uh, Jackson crime and all of the stuff. And, you know, how do we fix it? I feel like it's just, it, it, it's well beyond just policing, which I absolutely think more police will help. But I think we have a cultural rot in this city. And you know, I always talk about for the culture, for the culture, for the culture is rot. And, and, and I don't know how you just fix a culture when you've got 25 plus years, two full, pushing three generations of a prison culture in the streets, fatherless homes, single parents, no parent homes, babies having babies. Now you've, you mentioned my Save Jackson Instagram, uh, Douglas. You can go, if you, ever, if you ever want to feel really bad about how bad it is or see how bad it is or see the divide between the haves and the have-nots or the care and people, the people who care and the people who don't care, go read the comments under any random Save Jackson Instagram post. And I think you'll see what people are dealing with around here. It's just, I don't know what you do about it. I really don't. It's, it's really sad. If you drive around certain parts of Jackson, you see people who I would guess have mental health problems. Um, some of them probably look like they have alcohol or meth addiction problems. Um, but if, if we don't figure out a way of addressing that, then what, what happens to the public spaces in our city? Let me, let me put it this way. When I first arrived in Jackson, I looked at a park at the end of my street where I work in George Street. And I looked at it the first day I arrived and I thought, what a pretty park. Um, and I imagined that when my family from England joined me, we would maybe go there and have a picnic uh, for lunch. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful place. And um, I walked up to it, and I looked at the park, and I noticed there were two or three people sleeping on benches in it. I noticed it was littered, and it was... It, uh, I, I thought, the last thing I'm ever going to do is actually take my family to that park. Because we've allowed the public spaces in Jackson to be taken over, and I'm not accusing anyone of being a bad person, they, they have mental health issues, they have addiction problems, but if you abandon your public spaces to people who have mental health problems and are vagrants and perhaps beggars, you are driving away civic society. And yet We need to figure out a way of making sure that the public spaces in Jackson are open to the public. Well, don't, we, don't we have, doesn't the ACLU play a part in this too, some of their lawsuits about um, harassing vagrants or running vagrants off and, and stuff of that nature? It's been a, a running panhandlers off, for instance. I know that's been a big issue is the ACLU. I'm, saying I'm, that, I'm sure. I mean, you know, activist left-wing um, lawyers, um, 
I think misguidedly, um, challenge the ability of authority to address these problems. And we can see in some other states what happens when, when you have civic leaders in, in California, for example, um, not simply just asking vagrants to move on, but, but actively encouraging them to set up camp. Um, you, you, you see the death of urban cities in California. And do, do we want that in Jackson? We need to figure out a way of making sure that, yes, people with mental health problems are looked after, but you're not doing anyone any favors by letting them live in a public park in downtown Jackson. You're not meeting their needs, and you're not meeting the needs of civic society in Jackson. You're getting the worst of everything. And for well-paid lawyer activists to come in and, and frustrate the ability of our civic leaders to do that, it's a problem. I, I think that we're not yet at the stage even where we can blame um, activists, left-wing lawyers. I mean, there's just a, a basic lack of civic ownership in Jackson where anyone sees the need to actually do something about this. Well, they, they have a, I don't know if you didn't have the headphones on, so you didn't hear the intro to my show. There's this famous saying around here, anytime you argue with anybody that works with the, in this administration, or if you, God forbid, you criticize them, they use say, hashtag a positive solutions only, positive solutions only. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to criticize them. Sometimes things don't get up. Sometimes it's not a positive solution. Sometimes a solution is ugly, and nobody wants to face that head on. Also, a positive solution begins when you acknowledge the extent of the failure. And it's not as if, sometimes when we talk about social decay and crime in Jackson, people like to talk about the abstract. They like to talk about the rise of fatherlessness. And yes, that's a problem. Um, but can we actually get the authorities and the criminal justice system to deal with what they can do something about? We can't make everybody um, come from a two-parent, happy, idyllic nuclear family. We can't go back and change the past. Um, I'm not sure we can even make sure that going forward people will live in, 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 in that kind of idyllic um, upbringing. But what we can do is make sure that if you have large parts of urban Jackson that have basically been abandoned by ordinary Jacksonians. You, you do something about the vagrancy and the homelessness problem. Um, it, it seems just so, so obvious to me as an outsider that you know, this is how cities around the world function. You, you make sure that the public space is open and safe to the public. And cities that forget that, well, they, 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 they're in a downward spiral. Well, and I think that, that actually plays off something I say all the time about how the problem is that Jackson has cancer. And the way that we're dealing with it is, oh, just don't look at it, it'll go away. Instead of like, let's attack this cancer where it lives, which is in the crime problem, which is in you know, the homelessness and, and the mental health issues on the street. One thing that I beat my drum about all the time is that part of the, the culture problem is that in these neighborhoods, people are growing up with so much trauma. You know, I've mentioned it before. At my church, I go to a church on Raymond Road to Southside Baptist. There's a family in my church that has been affected by homicide, I think, five times since I started going there like four years ago. Now, how do you have a whole culture where they're constantly losing members of their family to violence? They're all going to be, you know, mentally traumatized, and, and that leads to PTSD, and that leads to a lot of different ways that you act out. The, to start at the bottom and just to say, all right, let's take care of this homeless problem, let's take care of this crime problem, let's take care of all this, it builds it from the side that yes, you've got the you know the civic interaction and in your um, your open spaces, but also this this snowballs on itself just the opposite way that you know letting it go does. 
eventually you've got a society that we're addressing the needs of the homeless and we're putting them where they need to be to get help you know where we're trying to stop the crime where we're doing all this and and people start to become more healthy because we're giving them a little more healthy environment and yes there are individual choices to be made in there and all that but to me that's that's part of I've seen the snowball go one way in Jackson and I feel like it's just so easy to say where's the cancer I mean, the good news is it can be turned around. Mm -hmm. um, if you were having this conversation in New York in the mid-1980s in South Central Los Angeles during the height of the crack epidemic, you would have said New York's finished, Los Angeles is finished. Actually, the story of New York is one of revival. Um, if you get these things, the fundamentals right, uh, zero-tolerance policing, targeted policing, um, the uh, aggressive prosecution of people through the courts, if you get these things right, you can turn the tide and and New York is a textbook example of, of how to deal with these problems so we, we, we can do something about this but it only becomes possible when you recognize that there has been a failure and it's it's a failure caused by poor official policy and mm -hmm. um, I, I think also there's a slight and I speak as someone who lives and works in Jackson and I, I call Jackson my home um, there's a tendency, I think, and a lot of your listeners will probably be listening to this outside of Jackson, to think, do you know what? It's Jackson. Who cares? Oh, yeah. Or even within Jackson, there's a tendency to think, it's West Jackson, South Jackson. Who cares? Well, the, the not caring thing is actually a defense mechanism because it's gotten so bad that everybody feels helpless. People care. I, I'm one of those people. There's a lot of people I, and, that and, I think you're right. Yeah. And, I mean, I, 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 I act out. If you follow me on social media with my Save Jackson stuff, I act out in anger about it, and, and I even laugh a little because it's the only way I know how to cope with it. Because yeah. I feel helpless, and I, I think that's where people I, I, feel I, more on that. It's not that we don't care; it's just that we feel like we don't have a voice that, that I, anybody listens to. I, I think you're right, but I, I think now there comes a time when we need to say, right, okay, Jackson is our state capital. Um, Jackson is the capital of Mississippi. And if we want Mississippi to be a successful state, if we want Mississippi to be like Tennessee or Dallas, if, if we want to make sure that young Mississippians aren't moving to Nashville or Texas or Florida, but are actually staying here and Jackson is a place where the next generation has a future, we need to make sure that the capital city of our state is not what it is and what it has become. Um, if, if you look at some of the statistics, I think I'm right in saying something like, 30% of graduates from Mississippi and Old Miss take their first job in Hines County. Um, well, no wonder there's a brain drain. If, <laughs> if, if the option is you know, a, a high crime city like Jackson or Nashville, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's in the interest of the whole of Mississippi to tackle this problem. And this is why our fifth recommendation is that the state officials and the state governments comes in alongside the civic leadership of Jackson. Now, I, I get that civic leaders in a city want to make key decisions, um, and that's right that they should. But I think there comes a time where we, we should say, look, things have gotten so bad that actually you need outside money, outside knowledge, outside personnel, and I think that's the key. It's not about the money, it's about the leadership. Personnel coming in and saying, okay, how do we clear the courts? How do we make sure that we have enough police. If Jackson Police Department can't cope, what is it that we can do to expand the Capitol Police and give them greater jurisdiction in downtown Jackson? These are the kind of things we can and should be doing. I saw the other day some state troopers in downtown Jackson, and a little part of me was like, hey, fantastic, it's good to see them. Why, why don't we see more of them? Um, there are things like that that we could do. Right, we're going to take another break real quick, kind of make up for that overage we had there. When we come back, i got a video I want to play of Lumumba 
last night discussing violence interrupters and it's all kind of stuff, pointing the finger at everybody except the mayor. You're listening to The Clay Abel Show, joined by Douglas Carswell with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy and Therese Abel with Dark Horse Press. We'll be right back on 103.9 WYAB. But, again, when it comes to him and crime, it's word salad, it's, there's layers, there's this, I wouldn't blame it on this, I wouldn't blame it on that. The audacity on this man is what gets me. And, and I, you know, I don't like talking about politics, I don't like getting into it on politicians, but he's sitting there talking like that. We've got a dead five-year-old child and a guy that fired shots into a car with three children in it. And that is just, oh, that's, that's Saturday. And that's what happens. And a guy who had been in trouble with the law before. Absolutely. And who, if the legal system had actually enforced its own judgments on him, yeah. wouldn't have been in a position to do that. This is what is so shocking. And for the person who presides over the city to then say, we're all responsible. Well, if everyone's responsible, no one's in charge. And this is the fundamental problem. It, 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 it's uncomfortable and it's unpleasant, but individuals within the criminal justice system whose job was to make sure that his terms of um, probation were adhered to, individuals who failed to make sure that he stuck to his probation terms, they need to be held responsible. Uh, you yeah. know, here's the hashtag positive solution only. If he had been serving time for the crimes that he committed, that little girl would be alive today. Or at least not shot by him at that gas station at that particular moment, any other yeah. random Jackson gas station, a uh, different story. But it, I, I just think that if Clay Edwards goes into Jackson and commits these crimes, Clay Edwards goes to jail. Yeah. You know, but why don't these fake people? It's just mind-boggling to me. And if, if the fact that it happened in Texas and he violated probation there, so clearly you have a problem there as well. He violated probation there and got released from it. Comes here, steals a car, and the case gets thrown out of Hines County. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's so Douglas. I lived in Jackson. I'm 44. I lived in Jackson for 43 years. I just moved. I finally just had enough and moved last year. Lived in Rankin County for one year. The number one reason, above any and all, that I moved finally was the fear of if I had to defend myself in, in Hines County and, and shoot somebody to defend myself and my family, was I going to be the criminal? And I could not live with that. I could not live in that fear with, with crime on the rise like it has been. I can't take a chance of being the criminal defending myself. And we've seen that happen. Absolutely. We, we have a track record of that happening around here. So that's why I finally moved it. I just had zero faith in the Hines County judicial system. That's very sad. That's very sad. All right, we're going to take another break real quick. Come back, tap off this hour. You're listening to The Clay Edwards Show. We'll be right back on 103.9 WYAB. All right, welcome back in to the Clay Edwards Show. We've got about three minutes left in this hour, hour before the top of the hour news break. And one of the things I really wanted to make sure I got in with uh, Douglas Carswell was you were part of the team that started the whole Brexit campaign, correct? Yes, absolutely. So you, you spent 12 years in Parliament. I did. I went into politics in Britain, got elected to Parliament because I wanted Britain to become an independent country again. As America figured out in 1776, independent countries are more successful, happier places than countries run by people who don't live amongst you. So um, we um, voted to leave the European Union. The uh, entire British establishment um, was um, against us. Um, you mentioned uh, um, you know, um, Soros um, um, in a conversation we were having earlier, that the kind of um, Soros-supporting um, left-wing supranationalist elite in Britain were all telling us that 
you know, it would be a disaster if we left the European Union. I imagine much the same would have been said to Benjamin Franklin and George Washington back in the day. You know, if you leave the British Empire, it'll fall apart. Well, you know what? 240 years later, an independent America is a great success story. An independent Britain leaving the European Union, I think, will be a great success story. So we, we won that campaign. And every time I ran for re-election in Parliament, I got re-elected. But I only went in to get my country back, um, to get Brexit done. And so once we did that, I quit. I'm not one of those people who wanted to go into politics just to live off the taxpayer forever. So I, I stood down. This is interesting. It's, a, it's an honor to get to talk to you. Yeah. And uh, I was actually at the Trump rally with Nigel Farage, I believe. I'm saying that oh, yeah. when Nigel, I think it was the first time he had spoke in America yep. about the Brexit stuff. It was right here in Jackson. So we had a little piece of history. If anybody wants to go back and watch that, I thought that was really cool. Do you, I'm just looking kind of taking a gauge of temperature around here, it feels like America is on a course for some type of Brexit or divorce or civil war, worst case scenario, which I don't know how that would work now with one military, but it, it feels like, I don't know how we come back together in the middle here. I, I, I think it's important not to overstate it. You talk about civil war, no, there's, there's not going to be a civil war. America has a lot of problems, but these are resolvable problems, and they will be resolved when good, decent people acting in good faith figure out what to do. What America needs to do, I think, is recognize that America is an extraordinary success story. America is the most successful country that has ever existed. Um, it was born in rebellion against an established way of doing things for centuries before America. It was thought that if you had a country, you had to have a king or a queen in charge. You had to have a parasitic elite at the top. The founding generation comes along and they say, no, we're going to do it differently. We're going to have a republic. And it's an extraordinary success story. The problem is is that, and I see this as an outsider, America is one of the most successful countries on the planet. Douglas, hold, hold that thought. We're about to hit the hard break here in about 10 seconds. You're listening to The Clay Edwards Show. I'm joined by Douglas Carswell, the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, and Therese Abel. And we'll be right back after this break on 103.9 WYP. All right, we're joined in the studio this morning by Douglas Carswell, CEO of Mississippi Center for Public Policy, and Therese April of DarkHorsePressNow.com. We've got one segment left here with Mr. Carswell, and uh, we kind of closed out the last hour talking about Brexit and bringing America back together and getting some good, level-headed people to run for office. And I, and I just said, I don't know that any of our good, level-headed leaders want to do it, especially after the last four, six years and the mudslinging and you know anybody that's a conservative is a racist anybody that's a liberal is a nut job I mean it's like how do you get something kind of in the middle is there going to be this one force that rises up and kind of somewhat pulls people together or helps bring the temperature in the room down some you know is it somebody like the rock running for president I'm just going to stuff against the wall here but but here's, here's an interesting thought experiment imagine that there was a young Jimmy Carson today in the Democrat party or a young Ronald Reagan in the Republican party would they even get nominated for office. I, I fear that perhaps we've got to a stage where politics has become so toxic that a young Jimmy Carter or a young, young Ronald Reagan wouldn't even get very far in, in those parties, particularly the Democrat Party. I mean, the party of Jimmy Carter has, to all intents and purposes, died. It's, it's gone. It's disappeared. Um, and I, I, I think that should worry us. But they're so concerned with identity politics over on the left-hand side, at least from my perspective, they're so concerned about identity politics that 
you got to check off uh, boxes. You got to be black. You got to be a female. You got to be transgender. You got to be gay. You got to be something. You got to check off X amount of these boxes to to be considered a candidate on the left hand side. And that's but why I feel like there's a version here. of that on the conservative side too. I mean, the fact is like, and and. You know, people don't like it when you say it either way, but both parties now are so polarized that we do have good level-headed politicians that know what they're doing that could change the country, but people are so busy being like, well, there was language written into a bill that he voted for that I didn't like, even though there's 700 pages in that bill, and everything in it needed to be except for this one piece, so they use that as a talking point. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I was listening a, about a year ago to people talking about Chrissy Nome, the governor of one of the Dakotas, and apparently she had vetoed a bill on something to do with transgender. The reason why she vetoed it is because it was a badly drafted bill, and quite rightly, she thought, you know, as a good conservative, she thought, I'm not going to support something that is bad law. But this was kind of used against her, saying, you're, you're ideologically impure, how dare you? And I, I kind of thought, hang on, conservatives, a, a good conservative should understand that the governor of a state has a duty to veto badly drafted law, even if even if we agree with the underlying principle of the law. And that's when I started to think, hang on, maybe both parties have got this problem. They're, they're competing for a form of ideological purity. And and if you do that, you drive away, you know, the, the world's a complicated place. Ronald Reagan didn't suddenly wake up one morning with a perfect free market vision in his head. He, he, he got there incrementally. So I, I think that's the problem. I, I, I do see an opportunity here. I am really struck by how how much disillusionment and how much um, at the same time how much energy there is amongst ordinary folk I go and talk to around Mississippi. I was down in Smith County last night talking to a group down there, and I I think they feel fed up with being talked down to by politicians. Mm -hmm. Often when you have politicians talk to us, they speak to us in kind of simplified slogans as though they Talking think we're done. points and whatnot, yeah. And, and I think this is, this is an opportunity. At some point, someone on the free market conservative right will come along and will talk to millions of ordinary Americans and, and not talk down to them. And I, I think when that happens, that's when people will suddenly see a, a, a new Reagan-type figure emerge. Well, and, and you know, it's arguable that, that maybe Donald Trump was that a little bit. Um, like his politics or not, he came in with a whole different talking style than everybody else. Absolutely. You know? and, and there was a feeling with Trump that he would talk in that way, whether you liked it or not, right. to you, whether you were a multi-billionaire that he was um, doing a deal with, or whether right. you were kind of the guy um, doing his dry cleaning. And and it's that that quality of that that perception that he's treating everyone the same. I think another thing that counted for him is the feeling that he's so rich he can't be bought. Right. And what does that tell you about all the others? I, right. So I don't see how we saw him as a man of the people when the guy could have bought America if he lost the election. I believe, I believe it, it's an indictment against the other people yeah. that that it left a, it left a vacuum there yeah. for somebody like Trump to, to take advantage Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Sure. But I, I I'm optimistic because I think there is this appetite for someone to come along. Um, and I'm not endorsing any party, I don't do party, party politics, but mm -hmm. for a leader to come along who talks to middle America in the way that middle America talks to itself, the way that you talk to your listeners, you, you, you talk to them as they are in the room having a conversation with them, 
And you, you know, you're not talking to them like you think you're smarter than they are. The problem, the fundamental cultural problem with politics, and I think it's a, a legacy of the kind of the Clinton era, is to dumb down the conversation. And I think voters are fed up with it. Absolutely. And when you were saying that, I was thinking about when we mentioned earlier about what would it look like if, if veterans were running again. You know, what if it, it was people that had actually laid their life on the line for this country? Well, they love this country. We know that. If you're going to love it to the death, that's who I want serving as my president. And actually, I have a cousin in North Carolina. He's a former Special Forces, and he's with a group, um, and I can't think of the name right now, but basically they're trying to expand nationwide to encourage veterans of both parties to run for office um, because, you know, you need that perspective that says, you know, I've been in the dirt for this country, I've been in the cold, I've been in the heat, I've, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I wonder if that personalization that we want, you know, that I would have a beer with this guy that we're looking for, um, doesn't come from someone who's had a little more life experience than I went to the prep school, I went to the Ivy League school, um, you know, I played tennis on my dad's private tennis court until you know, one day my time came to become the politician, the next generation mm -hmm. politician in my family. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that we all kind of push back against now mm -hmm. um, because those dynasties did, you know, for so long. There's happen. definitely an anti-incumbents mood mm -hmm. in America. And well, yeah. I think Michael Guest is seeing that right now uh, on a local level. It is an anti-incumbent anti mood. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's the first thing that, yeah, that came to mind. I think even... Even for things he has nothing to do with, people kind of want blood right now out of, from Washington. So I mean, much they're willing to vote for a guy that's not even from this state. Without passing any judgment on either of the two Michaels, I, as an outsider, am really struck by how in two of the three Republican primaries that we've just had, the incumbent was forced into a runoff. Now, that, that tells me something about the public mood, um, irrespective of the performance of the different candidates in that race. But I think, too, in the Michael Guest case, um, I, I feel like so many people thought he had it on lockdown, you know, because the other guy is, is not even really a Mississippian. Um, I, I think there's, you know... Not some, all of us are perfect. Yeah, well, true. You're, all right, right. But, um, you know, I think the people that are kind of jumping on his bandwagon in some cases are looking at specific things. I think it's a, a case like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, there's some things they're using against guests that were kind of one of those, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the point is, when you look at, at those races like that, I, again, we go back to the apathy thing, like, I, I didn't vote in that election, I had other stuff to do, I was on the coast, you know, there's all these things, um, because Michael Guest had it, what was I, what was I going to do with I that one? I suspect there may be a slightly <laughs> higher turnout. Yeah, I think there will be. Yeah. You know, Cassidy not being from Mississippi is a non-factor for me, I will put my arms around anybody who wants to come fight for Mississippi, so I, that, that wasn't an issue for me, and I'm a lifelong Mississippian, but uh, I just, again, I think it's just kind of burnout on the incumbents. It's like, all right, nothing good has happened. Nothing good is coming out of D.C. right now. I know one thing doesn't necessarily change it, but i got to feel like some change has got to be better than the current. But are we path. are we treating our politicians like football coaches? I mean, you know, there's those schools that, like, notoriously, they give the guy three years and, like, ah, you're out, you Texas. suck. <laughs> Texas yeah. is back. Well, you hadn't had time to build anything yet. You've had three years. Now you're gone. Oh, this one lasted a year. I mean, I kind of feel like sometimes we we're letting some of them go way too long, and we're not giving some of them the time they need to actually do something with it, you know? I agree with that. All right, 
Douglas, we appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. Hope you'll come back. It's been a great start to my day. Thank you so much. Michael, you're listening to the Clover Show. We're joined by Douglas Carswell, CEO of Mississippi Center for Public Policy. I've got Therese Abel. She's sticking around with me for the rest of the show. We're going to dive into the death of Kenneth Chrome and Therese's coverage of that. We'll be right back on 3.9 WYAB.